And so now we come to the end of this great section, chapters 8 and 9, just before Jesus begins his next um, discourse, his second of five teaching sections where he sends the disciples out on their mission. We see the last three miracles and the last lesson on discipleship. So let's read Matthew chapter 18, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Thursday night, um, after life group, or the Thursday before last Thursday, in fact, um, after we had our life group, as Maddie and I were going to bed, we realized that Micah, our cat, had not yet come home. We're like, oh no, where's Micah? But, you know, he's done this once before. Friday comes along, we don't see him in the morning. Normally he's there in the morning, scratching on the window, he's not there. Friday night comes, we're like, he's still not back, he hasn't come back for food, we're, we're starting to get worried, we're knocking on neighbours' doors, because all of our neighbours know him, because Mike is always on their roof or in their yard, and, 
and they're helping us look for him. We're in every nook and cranny. We can't find him. We go to bed Friday night, wake up Saturday morning. He's still not there. We're starting to get really worried. Um, even I'm starting to get worried. And I'm not a cat person. I didn't want a cat. I didn't want this cat in particular. I was reluctant, but my mother-in-law was persistent. And she's here, right there. And I love my mother-in-law. She's awesome. Uh, and she bought a cat for the kids, and uh, I fell in love with Micah. And so I'm starting to get really worried. I'm like, where is this poor little guy? Like, I want to feed him. I want to care for him. Saturday rolls around. He's still not back. So Maddie starts to make signs up, puts them on posters around. We're telling people. We're texting out. It's on the Facebook groups. Still doesn't come home. Sunday morning, we're getting ready for church. I'm already here. And Maddie calls me. Oh, we found Micah. <laughs> we were so excited at first. But then we saw him. And we'd found him. My son Jasper had found him curled up in, under the house in a back corner. And when we finally got him out, he was shivering, breathing heavily, totally like distressed and distraught. We're like, oh, this, this is not good. But, you know, we had to go to church, and so we left him, we came home, and we tried to nurse him and cuddle him, and we actually had our whole life group over, and it was kind of like a stressful moment, because like, is he going to live, is he going to die? Eventually, we took him uh, to the vet, uh, the vet was like, that's oh, not looking good, he's probably been hit by a car, he's not breathing properly, I'll nurse him overnight. And I was like, okay, good, the vet's got him, he knows what he's doing, he'll be fine. And then just as I dropped the kids off at school on Monday morning, Maddie called me to say that you know, Micah had died overnight. And I was gutted. I was just so, oh, like, and I'm thinking, this is, a cat. I don't normally care about cats, but I just felt this sympathy and this compassion for this poor little cat that we love so much who's breathing so heavily and so vacant and then just the thought of him just dying on this bed alone in, in the vet's office and just like, oh, this is terrible. Um, and I, I was surprised. You know, I used to say things like, you know, the only good cat is a, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was stupid. I, I think that's a wrong view. Um, but I was surprised at how much compassion I could feel because I'd grown to know this cat and love this cat and know the story of this cat. And I saw this cat as more than a cat. I saw him as like a part of our family. Now, perhaps you have that same kind of feeling about pets, um, but one of the uh, realities of the world that we live in is that um, not only are we dealt with like these kind of sad moments with pets and they feel like family and they die and it feels so hard, um, but we're dealt with all this news all the time of all these amazingly horrible things that are happening around the world. You know, uh, Marcus sent me an article this week about what's happening in India, and you just see the utter devastation, the corruption, and then you hear about, you know, police shootings in, in the U.S., and you hear about, you know, yesterday a poor lady was killed in a car accident in Main Street, Parramatta, and you hear story after story after story, and it's hard, if, you're, if I'm honest with myself, to have that, even for humans, that same level of sympathy and compassion. Perhaps you've experienced, you know, compassion fatigue, you hear so many bad stories that it's hard to actually care about them all. Well, as we've gone through chapters 8 and 9, and as Matthew has described to us Jesus' ministry, he has been throughout all the cities and villages teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and affliction. 
He's seen crowds and crowds of people. There's potentially hundreds of thousands of people in all these cities in the Galilean region that he's been to. And every town he goes to, the, the hordes of people with all their illnesses, all their sicknesses, all their demon possession, the lepers, the, the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the mute, the, you know, the, all these diseases, they're coming out to him. And if Jesus was like us, I think he would have compassion fatigue. He would be like, just no, go away, no more. But look at verse 36. When Jesus is confronted with all this pain, suffering, and sin, what arises out of his heart? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, this word compassion here has its roots in, in a gut and visceral reaction. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, how sad. What's for breakfast, guys? That's not his reaction. His reaction is a gut yearning sympathy and pity for the plight of these poor people who are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, lost and stuck in their sin, stuck in their suffering, stuck in their illness, without hope without good teachers, without good leaders, and he burns for them. His heart goes out to them. And so as we come to the end of these miracle stories, what Matthew is trying to get us to do as, as listeners, as readers, is to do two things. He wants us to see the heart of the healer. He wants us to see not just that Jesus can heal, but see his very heart what moves within him, what flows naturally out of him. And he wants us to sync our hearts with his, that we would have the same heart of our Lord. So today, we gain an insight, and that's the title of my message, The Heart of the Healer, and we're called to imitate him. And one key message that I think Matthew wants us to see, at the heart of discipleship, is having the heart of the healer. Two points for us today. See his heart, sink your heart. S-Y-N-C, sink. sink. See his heart and sink your heart. Let's jump into point number one. See his heart. There are three miracle stories here in this chapter, but I'm just going to focus on the first one with, with the, the daughter and, and the woman, because I think in this story we get a sense of um, just the heart of our Lord. We've seen it all the way through. You see it all the way through the Gospels, but here we get a, a zoomed-in perspective. So verse 18, as he's just spoken to the Pharisees and the, John the Baptist's disciples, he's at this dinner. While he's saying these things to them, behold... A ruler, who we learn in Matthew's, uh, Mark's gospel, a guy called Jairus, a ruler of the local synagogue in Capernaum, came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Imagine this scene, you know, there's food, drink, partying, mirth. What, you know, it seems as though it's just flowed directly from what's happened um, in the previous week, and now here we are. 
and this local, probably quite wealthy man, Jairus, who runs the local synagogue, which was a teaching house for um, for, cities outside the temple region. They had these synagogues. And so he was an upstanding member of community. And here's Jesus, this renegade who's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then, but Jairus has had this horrible thing happen. His daughter's dying or has died. Um, He's in the process of death. And he's, he knows that Jesus exists and all restraint is gone, all maybe, you know, pride is gone. And he goes, he barges in, perhaps knocks over some John's disciples, barges through the Pharisees, gets through Jesus' disciples, and he falls on his knees before Jesus. He's there and he cries out this horrible declaration. My daughter has just died. I can hardly imagine what Jairus is feeling. I have a daughter and I have one on the way. I can't picture what it would be like to be by the bedside of a dying daughter, to see someone who is so full of life, empty, a shell, no light in her eyes anymore. It'd be heartbreaking. He makes a bold request, come and lay your hand on her. And she will live. It's bold, not only that he thinks Jesus can make this girl alive again, she's dead, but it's also bold because to touch a dead body in in Jewish culture was to render yourself unclean. So he's inviting Jesus, sacrifice your ritual cleanliness for me. Make my daughter well. Then, verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples it's beautiful it's a long day he's been doing so much he could have been like not now i'm having a party i'm comfortable i'm eating i'm drinking i'm having a good time i'm trying to save these sinners verse 20 and behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I would be made well. Suddenly a new person comes on the scene. As he's on the way to Jairus' house, and we learn in Mark and Luke's gospel that potentially the daughter hadn't yet died yet, that she was still alive. There's this kind of anticipation, there's hope. If Jesus gets there in time, she can be healed. And then this woman comes and tugs on the back of Jesus' garment. And we learn in Mark and Luke that Jesus felt his power come out of him. This woman who had a discharge of blood. And we don't know exactly the medical condition, but for 12 years she suffered. She's given all of her money to the doctors and no one can help her. Blood comes out of her in Jewish ritual culture. To be um, having blood is to make you unclean as well. Potentially this would have meant she would have been divorced because her husband couldn't lay with her, couldn't make children with her, couldn't live with her because of her discharge of blood. She might have been ostracized by her family. She may have had to live outside of the area of the city because of her uncleanliness. And her, again, like Jairus, so we go from the rich of the rich to the poor of the poor, in desperation, she's like, I've got to get to Jesus. She doesn't probably know all the theology. She maybe even has a mystical view of Jesus, like he's a powerful healer. If I can just touch him, I'll be cleansed. But nonetheless, she has faith. And she runs up and, and secretly, she kind of pulls on the hem of his garment, on his, the tassels of his, of his cloak. She's in an utterly hopeless position in a desperate state. 
And what does Jesus do? Well, verse 22, again, you know, with Jairus' daughter, he got up and followed. Verse 22, Jesus turned. He could have just kept going. You know, in the other Gospels, there's crowds of people on him. But Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. These words are so beautiful. You know, he looks at this absolutely broken woman. And even before he declares her healing, he encourages her. He calls her daughter. Potentially, she's lonely, abandoned, isolated. And here's this holy man, daughter. And he emboldens her and says, take heart. That is, be strengthened, be encouraged. And more than just, it's going to be okay, vain platitudes. Based on her faith, he heals her. And in an instant, she's made well. Now, we learn in the other Gospels that potentially she might have been healed just by touching him in faith. But Jesus makes a point to the crowd, and this extends his mercy, that everyone now knows in Capernaum that the woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years, she's healed. She's no longer unclean. She's no longer has to be ostracized. So now everyone knows her condition has been sorted, adding to the mercy, adding to the miracle, adding to the joy. We read on. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, um, in that time, you, you sort of hired mourners. Actually, it sounds a bit weird, but... When someone died, it was considered like proper and right for a family to hire um, even two flute players and a wailing woman. Uh, it sounds odd to our circumstance, but that was how you showed respect. You had this music, this dirge, this, this song, and a, a woman who would come in and kind of like cry out these songs. I once heard something similar to this when I was in Papua New Guinea on a short-term mission trip. It was late at night, and across the valley, you could hear this moaning and crying that went from... Um, day uh, d- dusk to daybreak, crying all night, wailing and moaning because their son or uh, someone had died in their family to show that they really honoured and respected. Uh, that was what was happening. There's a commotion. There's all these people here. And Jesus says, verse 24, go away. You're not needed. The girl is not dead but sleeping. And naturally they're They laughed at him. They scoffed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Now, we know she wasn't actually sleeping. That's a euphemistic kind of term that, you know, death is not the end. He wakes her from sleep because no one would tell everyone in the whole district, you know, verse 25. The report of this went out throughout the whole district if she really was just sleeping, okay? So Jesus has resurrected her from the dead, delivering back to this man, his very daughter. I can't imagine that moment. There's just a few disciples, maybe the father and mother in the room, and the light comes back on in her eyes, and her body is made whole. The blood, like he's holding, it says he touched her, right? So she, if she was dead, she would have been cold to the touch, No blood flowing. And then blood would have started to move from her heart and recirculate through her body and her body would have started to warm up. And that's what Jesus would have felt in that moment. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. 
And he goes on from here. We won't read it now, but he goes on to touch the eyes of two blind men and suddenly they can see, you know, like imagine being blind. Uh, I just, that's one of the most fearful things. I cannot imagine how scary it would be to be blind. And in an instant, their, their sight. Then they go to a demon-possessed man and he can't talk because a demon is so tormenting him. He can't even speak. And then suddenly, he can speak again. Matthew's painting this picture that Jesus is undeniably a man of authoritative power. But he's also not just a man of power. He's a man of undeniable compassion. Matthew wants us to zoom in and see the compassionate heart of the healer. Verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. The crowds and crowds of people, they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Friends, how do you view Jesus this morning? What's your first thoughts, word association? Jesus, teacher. Jesus, moral example. Jesus, savior. Well, one of the things that ought to come to our mind when we're doing a brainstorm of who Jesus is, Matthew wants us to see, Jesus compassionate, moved with sorrow, moved with sympathy at the plight of people, not indifferent to your pain and suffering, gentle and lowly in heart like Arby read before we prayed. In John 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's Jesus' judgment on the leaders of his day. You don't really care about these people. They're just projects. They just work. They're not people to them. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Know this, my friends. He has a heart of compassion, not just for Jairus and his daughter, not just for the, the sick woman, not just for the blind and the mute and the leper and the paralytic. He has a heart of compassion for you in your circumstance also. And just like the blind and the leper and, the, and the, um, the bleeding woman and Jairus, you can come to him. You can come to him and know that he will not drive you away. For when he sees you, he sees all of you. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows all that you've done. You can't hide anything. And what provokes out of him? What does your presence in the presence of Jesus provoke? Compassion. Sympathy. He has sympathy for you, friends. Do you have a physical ailment, some physical problem that just harasses you? Go to him. Ask for his healing. He may heal you, he may not, but he will have sympathy for you in your condition. 
Do you have a spiritual problem, perhaps a demonic uh, a force coming against you, attacking you, thoughts in your head that you do not want in your head? Or perhaps a, an awareness of the weight of your sin and your misery and, and guilt, like I could never make it up to God. Go to him like Matthew. He will have sympathy for you and he will forgive your sins and he will liberate you. He beckons you. This passage calls out to you, come, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. How do you view Jesus this morning? Well, see his heart, his heart of compassion for you, and his heart of compassion for the crowds. And we know his heart because he lays down his life for his sheep. It's not a project. It's his very purpose and passion. So, Matthew, amongst a lot of things in this chapter, he wants us to see his heart, the heart of the healer. But that's not all. He wants us to sync our hearts with his. And that leads us to point number two. Sync your heart. You know, you often get those updates on your phone or your computer that uh, you need to, you know, update and it needs to shut down and everything needs to be rebooted so that you can get the new operating system. Um, that's the reality that Matthew wants for us to do. We're so prone to compassion fatigue. We're so prone to seeing the crowds and feeling nothing for them. And so Matthew includes this story too, that we can hit the refresh button. We can hit the update button on our very own hearts that we would be like him, synced up with how he sees the world. Let's read verse 35 to 38 again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As we come to the end of this chapter, we come to these verses which are a hinge. They explain what had come before. Uh, it summarizes all that had happened. And it gives us a hinge into the next section in chapter 10 where Jesus sends out the disciples. But before we get there, Matthew and Jesus want to make it very clear that something needs to happen first within us before we go out. One final lesson. That at the heart of discipleship is having the heart of the healer. We're not meant to just see Jesus' compassion. We're meant to sink our hearts up to it. Before Jesus sends the disciples out on mission, he sinks their hearts to his. You see, in verse 37, he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It's like he's gathering the disciples and, by extension, us, and saying, Look, look out upon these crowds, these men and women, these lost sheep, these leaderless sheep, these harassed sheep, these helpless sheep, and see them. 
Look out. What do you see? He wants them to see them not as obstacles, not as problems, not as interruptions, but as precious people. Valuable, but vulnerable people. He doesn't want them to be like the Pharisees, who were so, uh, this is my struggle, so concerned about getting it right and purity and holiness and separation that they'd lost mercy. They'd lost compassion for the people. He wants them to see that there's a huge harvest field ready for picking, but a big problem, the workers are few. He wants them to see the problem. He wants them to feel the problem, that they are in danger, eternal spiritual danger. When you look out upon our city, upon your workplace, upon your street, upon your friends, upon your family, what do you see? Who do you see? Friends, neighbours, teammates, colleagues, annoying. (laughs) But do you see them as people, valuable people, eternal people? And especially those who are outside of Christ, do you see them as harassed and helpless? Vulnerable sheep being led astray by various false teachers and false religions and false ideologies. Do you see their desperate state? Or have you grown, like I have at times, compassion fatigue? What do you feel? Indifference? Apathy? Guilt? Confusion? Or perhaps sympathy? Compassion for them. A a gut-wrenching sense of, ah, they're lost. This city, these people, these friends, my family, they're lost. They're on their way to destruction. How are we meant to respond? Well, Jesus makes clear, very clear, step number one. Verse 38. See the people, see them as vulnerable, see them as helpless, see them as harassed. And therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In chapter 10, he's about to send the disciples. They don't know it yet. But before he sends them, before they get all the strategies, before they get all the plans, before we think through our mission strategies as a church and as a family and in our colleagues and all, how we're going to reach out, step one, pray. Before going is prayer. Before action is prayer. Before strategy is prayer. And not just prayer, earnest prayer. Begging prayer like the woman with the discharge of blood, tugging on the hem of the Lord. Lord, Send laborers. Praying to God that he would send the laborers. It's not even a prayer that we would go necessarily. It's a prayer that God would send out more workers into the harvest field. It's a prayer that trusts in the sovereignty of God to get his job done. It's a prayer that trusting that God will save his people, but it's tugging on his robe and say, God, do it. How are you going to do it? 
You know, before we planted this church, I was planning and strategizing, coming up with mission statements, thinking, what are we going to do? Where are we going to do it? How are we going to get everything? Who's going to be on the team? And I was reading a book on church planting, and, and one of the first things I read, I didn't read any of the rest of the book, but one thing was like, step one, pray for laborers for the harvest. And I was convicted. I hadn't prayed that prayer. I hadn't asked that God would raise a team, that God would choose who he would choose to come and join this church. So I started to pray that. And then 28 of you joined, and by God's grace, you know, there's a whole number more. We had 28 that came, where 18 kids join us. Now we're 54 members with 28 kids, with a few more on the way. And God has answered that prayer. But we are 54 adults in a church of, in a city of 250,000 people. We cannot do it. If we want to see the city one for the Lord, we can't do it. We will not be able to do it. 54 people, impossible. Even if you combine all the churches together, it's not going to happen on our own. As we went out over Easter, we were letterbox dropping into the letterboxes. And we didn't even print even a quarter of the amount that we needed to put in every letterbox in the one little tiny section of Parramatta that we were in. I was out there with Joel and we were skipping letterboxes. We were praying, Lord, which letterbox did we put it in? Who do we give it to? Because we had like 300 and we probably went through two or 3,000 homes in our time. We need the Lord to raise up laborers for his harvest field. We can't do it on our own. And step one before we go is earnest prayer to God before we start planning, before we even start going. For me, there are two ways I often fall into prayerlessness in this respect. The first one is what we've been dealing with, lack of compassion. I don't see people. I don't see them as souls on the edge of eternity. Well, the other one is wrong thinking on how to solve the problems. Even this week, I was thinking, am I doing the right things? As a, what should we be doing as a church? How should we do a mission? And I realized I was having all these thoughts and these doubts and these questions, but I wasn't praying. I wasn't asking God, what should we do, Lord? Will you send out workers? I was thinking, I, as the pastor of this church, need to figure out a strategy so that we can win Parramatta. So our problem is we either don't have compassion or we come up with the wrong solutions to the problem. We may feel compassion, oh, there's so many lost, but we don't come up with the right solution. Don Carson says it like this. It may be that if we fail to pray, it's because our compassion is defective. Or it may be that our compassion is engaged, but our diagnosis of the problem is faulty, prompting us to devote all of our energies to what are at best secondary solutions. Hmm. I had another quote, which was good, but I deleted it from my manuscript accidentally. But in the second quote, Don Carson says that, yes, we must go. Yes, we must do things. But we should do, it's not that we should pray and do nothing. It's that we should do nothing without prayer. That's Jesus' point. They're going to go, but as they go, pray. But friends, I, I put it to you this. We will only pray earnestly if our hearts are synced up with Jesus' heart. If we don't genuinely care, if we don't really think about these souls, we won't pray like that. We'll just go on our merry way. 
So before Jesus sends the disciples, he first sinks their hearts to his. Before we go, we are to groan. Before we're commissioned, we're to be compassionate. And before we preach, we are to pity and we are to pray. Over summer, I read a book on modern missions and it had some stories of older missionaries. In it was quoted a lady called Amy Carmichael. You may know her story. She was a missionary to India in the early 1900s. And while she was there, she was faced with the magnitude of the desperate state of India. Hundreds of millions of men and women, lost sheep, harassed and helpless, lost in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. She wrote a book of her experiences that her mission agency would not publish because it was too sad and depressing. They wanted good news stories. They, they wanted uh, people to be like, yeah, things are going forward in India. We, we saw someone get saved, which is good. But she was looking at India going, there are so many people crossing the edge of eternity without Christ every day. Eventually, someone published her writings and they entitled it, Things As They Are. And in it, she says this, More has been written about the successes than about the failures. And it seems to us that it is more important that you should know about the reverses than about the successes of the war. We shall have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but we have only a few hours before sunset in which to win them. We are not winning them as we should, because the fact of the reverses is so little realized, and the needed reinforcements are not forthcoming, as they would be if the position were thoroughly understood. Reinforcements of men and women are needed, but far above all, reinforcements of prayer. And so, we have tried to tell you the truth, the uninteresting, unromantic truth. The work is not a pretty thing to be looked at and admired. It is a fight, and battlefields are not beautiful. Friends, we need to see the perilous condition of so many around us if we're to ever change. We're to have the heart of the healer. We're to encourage and remind one another to have the heart of the healer because we're going to grow fatigued in our compassion. We're, we're going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. And I need you to go, Riley, do you care about people anymore? Is your heart longing? Are you weeping for the lost? I need you and, and you need me and we need each other that we would have this heart and that we would pray earnestly and then that we would go. I want to read to you to finish off one, um, one section from her book. It's a little bit long, but I think it will really impress upon us what we're getting at here. She was writing part of her book, and over the night time, um, she heard the, 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 the beating of the drums of the temple. And part of her ministry was to rescue girls out of sexual slavery in the Hindu temples, and every time the, the, the drums beat, it was a sign that there was a, a sexual experience going on inside the temple and another girl um, or another boy was being abused. And she writes this. The tom-toms thumped straight on all night. And the darkness shuddered round me like a living, feeling thing. I could not go to sleep. So I lay awake and looked. 
And as I saw, as it seemed, this. I stood on a grassy sward, and at my feet a precipice broke sheer down into infinite space. I looked, but saw no bottom, only cloud shapes, black and furiously coiled, and great shadow-shrouded hollows, and unfathomable depths. Back I drew, dizzy at the depth. Then I saw forms of people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding onto her dress. She was on the very verge. Then I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step. It trod air. She was over, and the children with her. Oh, the cry as they went over. Then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind. All made straight for the precipice edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly knew themselves falling, and a tossing up of helpless arms catching clutching an empty air. But some went over quietly without a sound at all. Then I wondered with a wonder that was simply agony why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground and I could not call. Though I strained and tried, only a whisper would come out. Then I saw along the edge there were sentries set at intervals. But the intervals were far too great. There were wide, unguarded gaps between. And over these gaps, the people fell in their blindness quite unwarned. And the green grass seemed blood red to me. And the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. Then I saw, like a picture of peace, a group of people under some trees with their backs turned toward the gulf. They were making daisy chains. Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air and reached them, it disturbed them, and they thought it a rather vulgar noise. And if one of their number started up and wanted to go and do something to help, then all the others would pull that one down. Why should you get so excited about it? You must wait for a definite call to go. You haven't finished your daisy chains yet. It would be really selfish, they said, to leave us to finish the work alone. There was another group. It was made up of people whose great desire was to get more centuries out. But they found that very few wanted to go. And sometimes there were no centuries for miles and miles of the edge. Once a girl stood alone in her place, waving the people back. But her mother and other relations called and reminded her that her furlough was due. She must not break the rules. And being tired and needing a change, she had to go and rest for a while. But no one was sent to guard her gap. And over and over the people fell, like a waterfall of souls. Once a child caught a tuft of grass that grew at the very brink of the gulf. It clung convulsively and it called. But nobody seemed to hear. 
Then the roots of the grass gave way, and with a cry the child went over. It's two little hands still holding tight to the torn-off bunch of grass. And the girl who longed to be back in her gap thought she heard the little one cry, and she sprang up and wanted to go, at which they reproved her, reminding her that no one is necessary anywhere. The gap would be well taken care of, they knew. And then they sang a hymn. Then through the hymn came another sound like the pain of a million broken hearts, wrung out in one full drop, one sob. And a horror of great darkness was upon me, for I knew what it was, the cry of the blood. Then thundered a voice, the voice of the Lord, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Friends, I think as, so, as extreme this image is, it gives us a vivid picture of why we need laborers. A waterfall of souls is pouring over the edge of eternity. The centuries are few. There's 54 of us in a city of 250,000, some of whom will die today. Therefore, my friends, have the heart of the healer. See them as people on their way to meet their maker and pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. What do we do if our hearts aren't synced? If you feel this kind of guilt or whatever, confess. Repent. Say, I'm sorry, Lord, that I don't have the same heart as you. Ask him to change it. Ask him to help you. Don't just go, oh, it's too much. I'm going to turn away because that's too uncomfortable. Repent. Experience forgiveness. And then seek the Lord that he would help you to have his very own heart. So friends, see his heart today. If you are outside of Christ, or even if you are in, come to him with your need in faith and ask for his sympathy and mercy on you. And sink your heart to his. Become like him. Weep for the lost. Cry out for laborers. And we're going to see that God is going to call us to be part of the solution. The way I want to end the service is actually to put into practice what we just saw. I want us to gather into small groups and seek the Lord of the harvest. Ask that he would send laborers out. And every month we have a, a monthly prayer night where we, we do this. Uh, and let me just ask you, if you haven't yet come, why aren't you coming? Not a guilt trip, just ask yourself, why don't I come to mission prayer? I'm not saying you have to, just a thought. And let's gather into small groups now, and if you feel comfortable, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers out. That's our prayer for laborers. If you don't feel comfortable praying, just sit in a group and listen. Listen to other people pray. And then I'll check the time. We've probably gone over. We may or may not sing our last song, uh, but let's spend that time in prayer now. So just shuffle your seats around, and I'll close us up at the end. Thanks, guys.
Well, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, O Lord, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are the Lord of the harvest. It's not our harvest, it's yours. You're the one in charge. You will send your workers, and we pray, Lord, raise up more workers. Send more laborers. And Lord, if you want us to answer that, you want us to go, if there's anything else you want us to do as your people, would you lead us by your Spirit? Would we be moved with pity like your son Jesus was and like you are in compassion for us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.